Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 59. In episode 58, we heard how two Swapa platoons had created an obvious trail near Tsumeb. It was bait for a trap they were planning, an ambush that would surprise the trailing 61 mechanized battalion follow-up. This was a change in tactics by Swapo's commander, Danger Ashapalo, who'd sent 150 men to attack the white farming areas in the Triangle of Death. The South Africans were aware of a series of tracks. This had been a large group of Swapo and couldn't be missed. What they had no idea about was that their enemy had decided that in this case, they wouldn't run, but stand and fight. On the evening of April 14, 1982, 61 mech had been enjoying entertainment laid on at Tsumeb Town Hall when word came of the large number of tracks discovered near the border with Angola. And it appeared the enemy was heading their way. Less than 90 minutes later, these troops suddenly were in the bush trying to make contact with two Swapo platoons. There were also two Alouette gunships and two Pumas ready to fly over the area at first light on the 15th, and it wasn't clear at this stage how fast Swapo was moving. Of course, they weren't moving fast at all, and had moved and stopped exactly where they were going to lay their trap. Alongside Efensachana, west of Tsumeb, on the Bravo area cutline. Tanti Pompi van der Westhuizen, the civilian farmer's wife who was so critically important in the relaying of information across the triangle, was up and about in her kitchen at Kudus Flay Farm. 61 Mech Commander Roland de Vries radioed her asking for assistance from her husband Dainke, who knew the area so well. Kudusfle is located about 30 kilometers from Tsumeb, and Dainke van der Westhuizen responded immediately, heading off to 61 Mech HQ at Sintsibas, along with his son Hendrik, the expert spoor reader Jan Kaka, and two other sand trackers. With so many Swapo guerrillas on their way south, De Vries was pondering something unusual. Why did Swapo not cover their tracks? They appeared to be marching about the bush, leaving clear signs instead of the usual approach which was to try and obfuscate their movements. The next day the sun rose, heralding another warm day in the triangle, but today was going to be more than warm. It would be very hot. It was Thursday, the 15th of April. Swapo's platoons under their commanders Kayofa and Kululu had ordered their men to dig in behind thick bush on the western side of a large open area, the Afensa Chana. That was northwest of Tsumib, and their position provided an excellent vantage point. They could look out over open ground from behind thick bush to the other side of the chana, which is an area like a small salt pan, open, sandy. They'd walked north from Bravo Cutline into the bush, then over the chana and entered bush on the other side. This left a very clear trail to follow. It was a classic setup. The guerrillas then dug shallow foxholes, 40 men in all laid out in two lines. The first group of around 15 were lying a few meters away from the edge of the chana. The second was behind them, about 20 to 30 meters away. Both groups arranged to fire in a southeasterly direction. They had set up 60 millimeter mortars and further to the right was a Strela missile group with a view of the cut line, the China and their own men. They had created a killing field. Swapo was also armed with RPG-7s and grenade launchers and these troops were laid out so that the blast from the pipes would not burn their comrades. Behind them were the 60 mil mortars. They could hear the rifles and other vehicles moving around through the night, but couldn't see any yet. Back at Kurusfle, Tanti Pompey was monitoring the army radios and had the volume turned up loud. As Dion Lamprecht writes in his biography of Tanti Pompey, she had 
prepped Donkey's pack before he left with extra cigarettes, his Bible, and a bottle of whiskey. He'd always take a bottle into the bush when he patrolled. She wasn't too pleased about that. He'd formed a kind of dependency, which wasn't quite alcoholism, but it wasn't healthy either. His brand was White Horse, according to Kalfut Itzak, or Itzak Fissa, a friend. Kalfut or Barefoot Itzak preferred not to wear the boots issued to commanders. He also liked to make a huge fire when he patrolled, which unnerved his colleagues. Fissa just laughed, saying he wasn't afraid. Back in Tinsibus, Roland de Vries was up and about at about 0600 hours waiting for news on the 15th. He didn't have long to wait. Almost immediately he received a call that one of the 61 mech rattles had rolled south of Oshivello Gate, killing one of the troops inside. The first SADF soldier to die in this coming battle had perished in a car accident. That seemed more than an utter waste. Three hours later, more bad news. A northern border company patrol spotted Swapo's tracks crossing the Bravo cutline, 30 kilometers west of Tsinsibas. As they tracked this group, one soldier had been blown up by an anti-personnel mine. But this time, Swapo didn't just lay a single mine, they laid it on top of an 82mm mortar bomb. This killed the SADF soldier outright and wounded eight others nearby. It was a real mess. De Vries was growing more concerned by the minute. All that this patrol could find after they casavacked their wounded were the tracks of four Swapo. Back at HQ, De Vries began to privately dread the next radio call. Events were not going in 61 Mac's favour. De Vries also needed better information about what was going on, and he trusted Captain Jan Malan of Alpha Company with the mission. He asked him to take along Donkey van der Westhuizen, his son-in-law Hendrik, and three sand trackers, Jan Kaka, Jan Senior, or O-Jan, as he was called, and Eddie. They were the best in the business, and right now he needed the best out there, searching for Swapo. They headed off along the Bravo cutline through the bush, arriving at a spot 15 kilometers west of Tsinsibas, where Swapo's trail had last been seen. Captain Milan had chosen Platoon 2 from Alpha Company to trail Swapo, joined by four rifles, one for each of the infantry section of 10 men, as well as an extra for the platoon commander. The company commander, Captain Milan, was in his own rattle, so there were now five of these feared armoured vehicles out at Bravo Cutline. Before Milan had left Tinsibas, the Vries briefed the officers and NCOs and said, It's as nie lekker nie, manne. Something is not right. Be extra cautious, he warned. Back at the Bravo Cutline, the three sand trackers sat on the lead rattle trying to pick up the trail as they headed in a westerly direction. Waiting at Kudu's Flay, Tanti Pompey would radio Donkey intermittently, just staying in touch. When Captain Milan's group eventually came across Swapo's trail, they couldn't believe it. The chevron pattern of their boots were laid out clearly across the open cut at almost 90 degrees. Only three men had passed across the road. Where were the others? Lying alongside this trail were pamphlets they'd obviously tossed around so that the South Africans would find them. Captain Milan ordered the rattles to halt and the South Africans jumped down, checking on these bits of propaganda. What they didn't know was that less than 300 metres away, to their northwest, a 40-strong Swapo platoon was waiting for the South Africans' next move. The men lying in their shallow foxholes saw the dust from Captain Malan's rattles drift through the bush, and they heard the engines. Then the rattles stopped, and judging from the sound, they'd stopped exactly where they had planned. They knew their spoor had been seen. 
The commanders whispered along the two lines of Swalpur dug in. Get ready. Back in the lead rattle, number 12 Alpha, the sand trackers were looking closely at the spoor. Because these were in fairly soft sand, there were two forms of track that interested these men. First was the lung spoor, the complete boot print from heel to toe. The sides of the print would have been sharply defined if fresh, depending of course on the wind and the amount of sand blowing around. They could then estimate the time. Had the sand been spread thickly over the tracks, it probably had been laid down hours or maybe even days before. The sand trackers could tell from the weather, the wind and the sharpness of the spoor that they were about 12 hours old. What was normally the case in these situations was that Swampo would keep moving, sleeping only for a couple of hours, so that the South Africans believed the guerrillas must have been at least a few kilometers away by now. But they weren't. The Swampo platoons could smell the Rattle's diesel fumes. Then it was time to identify a spot where Swapo had laid their inevitable landmines and the SADF found a hump in the sand. They flagged this for the sappers and then took a closer look at the tracks. These appeared to be heading south and there were three Swapo, probably men. The platoon moved back to the Bravo cutline following the three tracks, backwards to the north. A short distance from the cutline they found shallow trenches dug just inside the first thick bushline and there were a lot of men here. Tracks of at least 20 were found. But these headed north, not towards the farming area, but back towards Itosha and the border. What gives? thought Captain Malan. He and Daiki van der Vestesen discussed what they'd found. Surely the Swampo group had headed north as a ruse. They were aiming at the farms, so they were trying to trick the South Africans by turning at some point in the north and striking out south once more. The question on Malan's mind was, did the Swampo unit move east or west? They needed to find out which. Captain Milan radioed de Vries asking for permission to conduct a wide circular sweep both sides of the cutline using the tracks as the centre point. That was taking a bit of a chance given how hot the trail was but de Vries decided it was worth the risk and during the radio call warned Milan that Vies net cutfoot. Be like a cat. One of Alpha Company's sections would head south in Rattle 12 Bravo using Jan Kaka's older brother Oyan, as their tracker. They were to head no further than 200 metres off the cutline road. Another section was to head north, following the larger trail of men into the thick bush. As I said, that was taking a big chance. Given that they were now following what looked like an entire platoon with a single rattle, a section, those weren't great odds, particularly as Swapo had the upper hand because of the thick bush surrounding 12 Alpha. They'd leave the three other rifles, 10, 12 and 12 Charlie, on the Bravo cutline so they could respond in other direction should the situation arise. A full section of 10 men were on board the rifle as it headed slowly into the thick bush. It was also the driver and a gunner manning the 20mm automatic cannon. This was 12 Alpha, Platoon 2, Section 1. They believed they had enough firepower to cope with 20 Swapo if the enemy had been slow to leave the area. What they obviously didn't know was just how many guerrillas were waiting just the other side of Offensa China, dug in with a Strela missile, 60mm mortars and RPGs. Even for a rattle, any one of those arms would pierce its armour. Dainke was sitting with the commander in the turret with three men on the front of the rattle, including Hendrik, Jan Kaka and the other sand tracker, Eddie. The six-wheeled powerful rattle crunched through the thick bush, knocking down the small trees as the trackers pointed the direction to the driver. They were bundu-bashing, 
and the rattle was king of the bush bashes. Lying in their foxholes, the Swapo company waited, hearing the tearing sounds as the branches broke and the rattle's powerful turbo-diesel growled. They had been briefed that this would happen, and today they were not running. They were going to fight where they were. Young Kaka was apparently sitting on the nose of the rattle by now, along with rifleman Hendrik Fisser, while Eddie was sitting on the spare wheel behind him, although there is some debate about whether at least one of the trackers was on foot. Danke was still sitting in the commanding officer's tower, keeping a close eye on the trackers and for signs of Swapo. He'd been in the command tower through four previous contacts with Swapo, where he'd seen 18 enemy killed, so he was confident of the rattle and the SADF capabilities. It was around 1100 hours when the rattle broke cover, heading in a northwesterly direction across the China, and they were approaching the thick bush on the opposite side, when suddenly Jan Kako, or perhaps Eddie, no one can be sure, smelt human urine and saw the splashes on the sand. At about that time, Dainke could have spotted the dark green uniforms of Swapo in the bush directly ahead. Captain Milan, waiting with the three other rattles, heard the explosions and automatic fire. He immediately realized that the weapons firing were not the 20mm rattle cannon. As Dion Lamprecht says, the gates of hell had opened up on 12 Alpha. The first RPG hit its engine block, which stopped the rattle in its tracks. At least seven other RPGs and SKS tank grenades then hit the rattle at point-blank range. Dainke died instantly. Jan Kaka was also killed as he sat on the front, peppered with AK-47 rounds. Hendrik Visser was wounded, but tried to pull Dainke's body from the tower. Apparently he died in the attempt. It was carnage. The ten troops inside were all either dead or wounded by shrapnel. A few were sitting at the open door, and they were thrown out by the force of the RPG blasts, then shot down by AKs. Back at the cutline, Captain Milan ordered the two other sections into their attack formation, and they moved quickly towards the black smoke rising above the bush. At the same time, he continued calling 12 Alpha, but there was no answer, and he had to hold his fire because he had no idea where the South Africans were. Then he radioed Commandant de Vries back at Tsintsabas, who screamed, Go, go, go! to the Alouette pilots, and they were in the air shortly afterwards. Back at the China, Swapo commanders Kayofa and Kululu fired signal flares and the two companies leapt up from their foxholes and took off northwards into the thick bush. They'd come to destroy a rattle, not die, as Lamprecht notes. They weren't suicidal and knew exactly what was likely to be on the way. Their own version of hell was now approaching, the Alouette gunships. The two Swapo companies broke into small sticks of two or three men and melted away into the Tsume bushfold. Back at the China, two bloodied troops staggered towards Captain Milan and told him that many were dead. They all hurried to the burning rattle, where it was surrounded by AK-47 casings, only a few meters away. The South Africans didn't have a chance. As Milan tried to push open the rattle door, the ammunition inside began to explode. There were bodies and some were thrown burning out of the rattle as the explosions rent the air. The Alouettes arrived overhead within 10 minutes, which is remarkable really, and once Captain Milan had radioed the direction Swapo was last seen, he turned his attention back to the burning rattle. The Pumas landed, and the wounded were evacuated, along with the bodies of their fellow troops, but many more were inside the blazing rattle. Minutes later, the sound of the Alouettes circling and their 20mm cannon could be heard from the northwest. Then Captain Milan saw a line of black smoke rise towards one of the choppers, it was a Strela missile fired by Swapo, but it missed. He turned back to the scene of chaos and began to count the cost of this ambush. Along with Dainke, Hendrik and young Kaka, there were eight other bodies lying in and alongside the rifle. 
It was time to radio the facts through to De Vries, but Captain Milan could not reach him. Monitoring these calls was Tanti Pompey in her farmhouse kitchen, and she offered to relay whatever information he had to 61 Mech HQ. Captain Milan began reciting an outline of the event to Tanti Pompey, along with the details of casualties. She asked to speak to Dainke, but he continued with his list. He read her the names until he reached the last three. Her husband Dainke, her son-in-law Hendrik, and the master tracker Jan Kaka. And here he hesitated. When he could say nothing, the radio crackled and Tanti Pompey said, Do more, Captain. Ik het al die tijd gewet. It's okay, Captain. I knew all along. Then she radioed the Fries back at HQ and read him the names one by one, ending with Dainke, Hendrik and Jan. Clearly in shock, the 61 mech commander ordered the chaplain into a spare puma and he flew to Kudusflay Farm to be with Tanti Pompey and her daughter Olivia, who had collapsed when she heard the news that her husband Hendrik was dead. Back at Defensa Chana, the rattle continued to burn. Captain Milan and two Alpha platoons scoured the bush, finding three Swapo bodies and a Strela missile. One of the dead enemy was a section leader. By now, Karlfurt Itzak heard that his friend was dead and climbed into his Land Rover, heading for the China from around 35 kilometers away. That was taking a chance, considering how active Swampo had been, but friendship makes you do crazy things. He was determined to pull the bodies from the rattle when he got there, but it was burning too fiercely. That night he slept alongside the Hulk, and said later that it glowed in the dark like the heart of a Vulcan. The dead could not be removed, and Karlfurt Itzak said that those inside had died a Viking death. It took three days for the rattle to cool down enough before the bodies could be removed for burial. Later, the sappers found eight landmines around the area where Swapo had hidden, waiting for their prey, their departure present. But Swapo's Operation Typhoon was not finished yet. The platoons under command of Nangobi, Kilimanjaro, Kaunda, Shikongo, Castro and Induishi were still in the bush, aiming at targets east and west of Tsumeb. Their actions would continue to rip through the Triangle of Death. We'll hear what happened next in episode 60. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps escalate the visibility of the story. If you have any comments, head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, Fuss Bait. Mm-hmm.